The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shimong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Dharma, incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it. We can listen to it. We can express and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. Those who train wholeheartedly in awakening are called bodhisattvas or warriors. Not warriors who kill, but warriors of non-aggression who hear the cries of the world. Warrior bodhisattvas enter challenging situations in order to alleviate suffering. They are willing to cut through personal reactivity and self-deception. They are dedicated to uncovering the basic, undistorted energy of bodhicitta, loving-kindness and compassion. A true warrior accepts that we can never know what will happen to us next. We can try to control the uncontrollable by looking for security and predictability, always hoping to be comfortable and safe. But the truth is that we can never avoid uncertainty. This not knowing is part of the adventure. It is also what makes us afraid. Wherever we are, we can train as a warrior. Our tools are seated meditation and cultivating the four limitless qualities of loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. With the help of these practices, we will find the tenderness of bodhicitta in sorrow and in gratitude, behind the hardness of rage and in the shakiness of fear. In loneliness as well as in kindness, we can uncover the soft spot of basic goodness. But bodhicitta training offers no promise of happy endings. Rather, this I, who wants to find security, who wants something to hold on to, will finally learn to grow up. If we find ourselves in doubt that we're up to being a warrior in training, we can contemplate this question. Do I prefer to grow up and relate to life directly or do I choose to live and die in fear? The central question of a warrior's training is not how we avoid uncertainty and fear, but how we relate to discomfort. How do we practice with difficulty, with our emotions, with the unpredictable encounters of the ordinary day? For those of us with a hunger to know the truth, 
painful emotions are like flags going up to say, you're stuck. We regard disappointment, embarrassment, irritation, jealousy, and fear as moments that show us where we are holding back, how we're shutting down. Such uncomfortable feelings are messages that tell us to perk up and lean into a situation when we'd rather cave in and back away. When the flag goes up, we have an opportunity. We can stay with our painful emotion instead of spinning out. Staying is how we get the hang of gently catching ourselves when we're about to let resentment harden into blame, righteousness, or alienation. It is also how we keep from smoothing things over by talking ourselves into a sense of relief or inspiration. This is easier said than done. Ordinarily, we are swept away by habitual momentum. We don't interrupt our patterns even slightly. With training, however, we learn to stay with a broken heart, with a nameless fear, with the desire for revenge. Sticking with uncertainty is how we learn to relax in the midst of chaos, how we learn to be cool when the ground beneath us suddenly disappears. We can bring ourselves back to the spiritual path countless times every day, simply by exercising our willingness to rest in the uncertainty of the present moment over and over again. In the Buddha's first teaching called the Four Noble Truths, he talked about suffering. The first noble truth says that it's part of being human to feel discomfort. Nothing in its essence is one way or the other. All around us, the wind, the fire, the earth, the water, are always taking on different qualities. They're like magicians. We also change like the weather. We ebb and flow like the tides. We wax and wane like the moon. We fail to see that like the weather, we are fluid, not solid, and so we suffer. The second noble truth says that resistance is the fundamental operating mechanism of what we call ego, that resisting life causes suffering. Traditionally, it's said that the cause of suffering is clinging to our narrow view, which is to say we are addicted to me. We resist that we change and flow like the weather, that we have the same energy as all living things. When we resist, we dig in our heels. We make ourselves really solid. Resisting is what's called ego. The third noble truth says that suffering ceases when we let go of trying to maintain the huge me at any cost. This is why and how and when we practice in meditation. When we let go of thinking 
and most especially the narrative or storyline, we're left just sitting with the quality of the energy of whatever particular weather we've been trying to resist. And finally, the essence of the fourth noble truth is that we can use everything we do to help us to realize that we are part of the energy that creates everything. If we learn to sit still like a mountain in a hurricane, unprotected from the truth and vividness and the immediacy of simply being part of life, then we are not this separate being who has to have things turn out our way. When we stop resisting and let the weather simply flow through us, we can live our lives completely. It always has been, it is now, and it always will be entirely up to us. How you doing? Good You. So here we are. Spirituality, or what we often refer to as living spiritually in the world, is a process, a lifelong process, that involves the following. First, inquiry. Second, discovery. And third, training, or what I prefer to call retraining. Inquiry. Without a full understanding of how mind is operating from moment to moment, there are no possibilities. And so when the Buddha Shakyamuni 2,500 years ago set out to understand his own discomfort, he focused his intention and inquired on the, inquired on the question of the nature of mind. What is mind and how is it operating from moment to moment? When we talk about discovery as the second element of this, this practice or training we call spirituality, we mean insight. We mean that through deep inquiry, through the use of the tools of seated meditation, mindfulness, and study, we discover things about mind that we may never have been aware of before, or if being aware of, we ignored. One of the translations of the second noble truth is that the cause of our suffering, our discomfort, our dissatisfaction, our discontentment, our fear and our worriment is ignorance. We ignore what is really so, or we are ignorant of, again, how mind is operating from moment to moment. Each of us bring to every moment of our lives a history of habitual behavior. Our reaction to life circumstances and situations, whether we realize it at the moment or not, are learned reactions. We learn to react to circumstances, situations, and stimuli this way or that way early on in our life. The Buddha taught that each of us are born with a basic goodness and that that basic goodness never changes at any moment of our life, no matter how many times we fall down, fail, and no matter how many times we may succeed and achieve 
it doesn't increase. That basic goodness is perfect and complete now and always. And within it, we possess a faith, a deep understanding that we lose sight of early on in our lives. When fear begins to become the operating mechanism in our life. In order for the inquiry to take root and to be effective or skillful, we need to begin with being honest with ourselves. Shakespeare Buddha said, to thine own self be true. To be honest with ourselves, we begin with, again, that the operating mechanism in our day-to-day -day living whether we are aware of it or not at any moment, is fear. We fear the unknown. We fear the unpredictable. We fear uncertainty. And again, referring to the second noble truth, we fear it because we become ignorant of our true nature. In the words that I just shared with you written by Pema Chodron, our reality is that each of us are part of a cosmic system of impermanency. By impermanency, we do not mean something negative like an end, but something more like a becoming. The universe, since the very beginning, call it the Big Bang or creation, has bec been becoming more and more the way it has always been. By impermanence, we mean that everything is changing from moment to moment. Ego cons us early on in life to believe that we are this solid, fixed entity, when in fact, we all are part of the same natural process as everything else in nature. We are a part of nature. We are the whole of nature. And like all of nature, we are fluid constantly changing and becoming, changing and becoming. This impermanency is not just our own quality or characteristic, but it is the quality and characteristic of everything, including, and this is important as we continue our discussion tonight and inquire deeper into how the mind operates, including our emotions and our feelings. Early on in life, we begin to adapt unwholesome habitual reactivity or reactive type behaviors to the more uncomfortable feelings and emotions of life. We learn early on somewhere, somehow, either through peers or family or parents, wherever the lesson comes from isn't as important as we understand that it was indeed a lesson we all learned to either fight or flee, or the third, find ourselves paralyzed by those more uncomfortable, negative emotions and feelings of life. Especially those emotions and feelings that surround a reality of life that is true, whether we like it or not. Life is, by nature, uncertain and ambiguous. And when we find ourselves suffering, as Pema Chodron's words explained, we find ourselves stuck in this notion that life should be different than the way it is, that there should be some certainty or predictability. Well, some good news is there is. 
but not what we usually think about. When the Buddha himself was asked, what can he claim to be his own? What can he claim to be this never-changing permanency? And he replied by saying, my actions, my words, how I, referring to himself, live my life. This inquiry eventually evolves to discovery, which eventually evolves to training. And the training takes place first when we are willing to be honest about our own fear-oriented way of life, when we are willing to tell the truth, at least to ourselves, that tomorrow frightens us, uncertainty disables us, and we find ourselves ever challenged in a battle that is futile, and that the solution to the battle is in this letting go of this pre-subscribed or pre-notion of self and reality, and taking the time through deep meditation and inquiry, through mindfulness living, to look deeply into what is really so from moment to moment. Anything that has been learned can be relearned if we really want to. So our unwholesome behavior that we adapt early on in our life can be replaced by wholesome or what the Buddha called skillful means. But first, we must be willing to embrace reality as it is, and by that I mean the reality of mind. Understanding how mind is operating from moment to moment is quintessential in spiritual training, without which nothing is possible. So again, 2,500 years ago, when the young Siddhartha, soon to be known as the Buddha, inquired into his own discontentment, he didn't go searching for the solutions to his questions outside himself. Initially he did, and after exhausting his efforts for a period of about 10 years or so, he gave up and looked within himself. And he said these words. He understood that the source was within him so well that he said, either I will awaken from this fearful discontentment or I will die one or the other. That was the level of his commitment, and that is the prescription of the level of the commitment required for anyone who follows in his footsteps. A willingness to inquire, to discover, and to retrain is essential. And this inquiry and discovery and training is a lifetime commitment required of us to give our full attention. So, understanding how our emotions are operating from moment to moment gives us insight into, again, the solution of how to deal with them. Over a year ago, I began to lose a great deal of weight. And in April of last year, as most of you know by now, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. After 44 years of training as a monk, I am willing to be honest enough to say to you, the shit got scared out of me. Mm -hmm. Pancreatic cancer, if you know anything about it, first of all, is a kind of condemnation, a death sentence. But the doctors felt 
qualified enough to put me through a process that lasted, as some of you know, up until a couple months ago. And now my cancer is in remission. But you need to know that every minute along the way, fear was present for me, as it would be for any living being, I would expect. And so often when I am asked, how did I get through it? My answer is always very simple and very clear. If it were not for my 44 years of training, I don't expect I would have gotten through it. Training is quintessential with or without a diagnosis of some type of terminal illness. Because whether we like it or not, from the moment we are born, we have been diagnosed with a terminal illness. We are all heading to the same destination. We all land in the cemetery, some sooner or later. The Buddha understood this, and he also understood, but we can learn to live in the meantime in a way that we can know life fully, as in the words of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, good life equals good death, good death equals good life. And this good life and good death doesn't come from taking life for granted or randomly living it and finding ourselves thrown about here and there from fear and then happy and so forth but from a real understanding of the nature of mind, how it operates, and learning how to use that operating mechanism to our benefit and to the benefit of all beings. Our impermanency is also characterized by our interconnectedness. How I live my life is not entirely for myself alone, but for all sentient beings. So how I live my life not only affects me, but it affects others. And how my life affects others returns and affects me again. In that year of battling cancer, I had to learn how to live in one of the four limitless potentials known as equanimity. I trained literally many hours alone in my bedroom in equanimity learning how not to be resentful, how not to be bitter, how not to be angry, how not to be impatient with the moment exactly as it showed up. This can only be learned again through deep training of the mind through meditation and mindfulness living, through learning how to use the breath and how to use our attention, dropping the narrative or story. So, when we begin to inquire about the mind, what do we see? You need to look at this for yourself as I share it with you. How do you react to discomfort? How do you react to uncertainty? And by you, I don't mean the ego. I mean what takes place in your mind the moment discomfort shows up in your life. If you take the time to inquire quietly and in meditation, you will notice that the first thing that the mind does is it creates a narrative. It creates a story about what is going on. It is our clinging to that story as real and true, as fixed and solid, that the Buddha taught is the cause of our suffering. 
spirituality is not a process by which we obtain new information, but more like a process by which we detach from and let go of unwholesome information that causes our suffering. And the one habitual behavior that we need to learn to let go of each time discomfort shows up and uncertainty shows up and unpredictability shows up in our life is our attachment to the story and the narrative. Learning to be mindful of when we go into the story, when we indulge the narrative, is essential. And the solution is simple yet difficult at the same time. Whatever the story may be, no matter how profound it may be, and I include stories such as God will help me, I include stories such as I am a bodhisattva, I include stories such as everything will be all right, sometimes everything won't be all right. And we need to learn how to embrace that. And when the story or our attachment to it has us stuck in the expectation that everything will be all right, the Buddha clearly pointed out this is another cause of our suffering. The training or practice is to detach from the story whatever the narrative may be and to learn to be with the experience. There is a law in quantum physics that is also within the teachings of the Buddha Dharma. Whatever you resist in life will persist. And when you resist it long enough, you will become it. Resistance is futile. To resist what is going on in the moment is to indulge the story in such a way that we eventually, again, expect the story to come true. And when it doesn't, doesn't come true, we find our suffering compounded. So the teaching or the practice or training is to l recognize when I am running the narrative in my head, whatever that may be, whatever that story may be, whether we believe it to be true or not, whether it be profound or just a simple story as don't worry, everything will be all right. We are to drop the narrative or attachment to it and learn, lean into the experience. Countless hours and days I spent last year in the experience of pain and fear, worryment, and a story that ran continuously. Again, alone for many hours in my bedroom and whenever I could sit upright in the zendo, I sat with the experience itself easier said than done, even for a 44-year-old monk, but nonetheless necessary. To lean into the experience is to learn how to hold discomfort in the same way we would hold comfort, to learn how to be present to the experience of pain or fear or worryment in the same way we are so easily present to, again, this sense of safety and security that we convince ourselves about often. In meditation, we just sit without expectation of any particular outcome, especially an outcome we would prefer, 
we learn to just sit with the experience because what is also a law of quantum physics and teaching in the Bodhidharma is whatever you fully experience disappears. When we can learn to just be with the discomfort and experience it as it sits within our body and runs through our system and our intelligence, it eventually disappears on its own. It's our resistance of the pain or discomfort that perpetuates the pain and discomfort. The Bodhisattva, the spiritual warrior, trains in this way so that he may or she may be free to be of benefit to others, to live a life whereby their thoughts, their words, and their actions prove to be beneficial to all of life, to themselves and to all they come in contact. But if my life is driven by fear and worryment, if I am going to flee or fight and resist or find myself paralyzed in those most difficult moments of life, I am neither a benefit to myself or anyone. It is this benevolent existence, and I need you to hear this, it is this benevolent existence that is the true joy in life. We are hardwired to love and to be loved. And in those moments, you should not need me to confirm this for you, that we find ourselves actually benefiting another, whether it is a loved one or a stranger or a friend. We find that in those moments, we are able to be joyful. But the true joy in life, as George Bernard Shaw once wrote, is being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one. And I can only be a benefit to others when I have achieved a kind of fearless approach to life. Now do not misunderstand. To live fearlessly does not mean fear does not come up. To live fearlessly means that when fear does come up, I have learned to hold it and be with it in a way that I manage it rather than it manages me. What did Pema Chodron say to us a moment ago in her words? The Buddha taught in the First Noble Truth that part of being human is discomfort. That life is suffering that life involves happy times and sad times, that life involves joy and pain, and that the secret to life, the secret to learning to live with contentment in life is learning how to hold the two from somewhere in the middle rather than the extreme ends we often run to. Again, our primordial response, which is also learned, an evolutionary lesson that has happened over centuries for, to mankind, is to either fight what is uncomfortable, to either flee from it, and this fleeing takes place when we try to replace the experience with the narrative. We are trying to flee the experience whenever we are running a narrative in our mind in an effort to find some type of security or comfort in what is going on. Or the third being this kind of paralyzation where we find ourselves just totally disabled and incapable 
of doing anything because our fear has overrun us. Our response, or wholesome response to fear, is to remember the words of Franklin Roosevelt. The only thing we really have to fear is fear itself, is being fearful and allowing it to run our lives rather than we run it. 2,500 years ago, the Buddha Shakyamuni gave us a skillful means to relearn our unwholesome behavior in reference to discomfort and worryment and unpredictability and uncertainty. But it begins with a willingness on our part to tell ourselves the truth. The truth is, life is by nature unpredictable and uncertain. Even those small things in life that we feel that we have some kind of predictability about, if we're honest with ourselves, eventually prove to be otherwise. How do we live in an impermanent reality is what the Buddha wanted to understand. How do we live in unpredictability and uncertainty? Because if we never learn how to really live in that reality, again in Pema's words, we live and die in fear. The choice is always up to us. To grow up, by that she means being honest, to be honest with ourselves, and to tell the truth about our reality, and then to inquire up to discovery, skillful means to react differently than we may have, been, uh, may have reacted throughout our mm -hmm. lifetime. By replacing our unwholesome reactivity with wholesome and skillful means, we begin to experience life that is withheld from us when our experience is fearful. Any questions? I'm not afraid of the silence, so I'm going to wait. <laughs> I'm just relieved I understand what you're saying. I'm sorry? I, I'm relieved I understand what you're talking about. Tell me. Well, I, I, mean, I just see that so often, the narrative, the story, mm -hmm. um, immediately buying into it, and then fortunately being aware of it much more today and stopping and deep breathing deep and then trying to let go of the story yeah. and realizing that I have no idea what's, what's in store. Yeah. Yeah. But it, uh, it's harder today. In one way, I know him, so that makes it easier to let go of the story. But the story seems so bad <laughs> out there that, you know, I, 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 don't, I just yeah. accept it, but yeah. it's, I just yeah. think it's so bad. Yeah. We, need, we need to understand that we're not talking about the quality of the story. We're talking about our attachment to stories as reality. So the story, whatever the story may be, my story or your story, doesn't matter who's running the story, okay, is merely nothing more than a fabrication of reality filled with opinions and expectations. But when we're running the story in our head, and you know this, it feels very true, doesn't it? feels very real, you know. And it is our attachment to the notion 
that stories have some kind of truth in them, okay, that keeps us stuck in running the story. The bottom line is we're either free at the moment of fear or we're not, okay? That's the bottom line. The bottom line is, is that the universe is made up of both yin and yang, made up of both good and bad. Each of us, no matter who we are, no matter how holy some may think we are or unholy others may think we are, every being, whether it be, again, a holy man or an unholy man, or a holy woman or an unholy woman, possess the capacity for both good and bad. Okay? And that good and bad is just another story. It's just another story. What the Buddha wanted to understand is, could there possibly be another way of resolving our fear in life, then setting ourselves up against life, which is what we do every day. When we are being driven by fear, the world becomes the enemy. We find ourselves always judging, qualifying, testing people. We look at someone with an opinion about them. We walk away and we say, that was a good person. Or we walk away and we say he's a bad person and so forth rarely is there anything in between and all of that but that in between that middle path is where the buddha found himself on the day of his own liberation and in the middle path the story does not operate the story either operates if you're a good person or a bad person now eliminate those two qualities and what happens to the story story disappears you're saying and what we are left with is what the buddha said what what is only mine and what is only mine is my own actions my own words and my own thoughts those are mine that uh, again after years of training one comes to rely on one can rely on and, you know, you've heard me often talk about the need for integrity. Now Webster defines integrity as a strict adherence to a particular way of being. So you who are on the road must have a code that you can live by. Without a code, training is not possible. So for the monks and I, we take a code called the precepts. We vow to live in a particular way in the world. We promise to be that way, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. Apart from that code, I have nothing to refer to. I have nothing to find refuge in. So again, when I found myself battling with the most painful times of my uh, fight with cancer, doing do not think for a moment that resentment and anger and bitterness did not show up for me. And I found refuge in that code. I found refuge in that identity. I call it the principle of identity. Most of us in life identify with either something outside ourself or nothing at all. The principle of identity has to do with who you choose to be in the world. 
And I can see this in my 10-year-old daughter already happening. And it happened to all of us. One of those unwholesome habitual behaviors that we learn early on in life is to view our world, to qualify it by what others are doing. We tend to qualify our world by the behavior of others. In the principle of identity, the only real qualification of my life has to do with who I am being in the world despite whomever anyone else is being. So I often say to young people, it doesn't matter how other people are behaving. What matters is, who do you want to be in your lifetime? Focus on that. Focus on your behavior. Train your mind. Train yourself. You see? So again, when we find ourselves being managed by fear, the world becomes this place, and the narrative of, about this place is always qualifying, judging, testing, and so forth. Eliminate the fear, and as I said a moment ago, that part of life that we all hunger to know deeply and personally is revealed to us, while it may never be revealed to us through fear. We, I want you to hear what I just said to you. What I just said to you is, you haven't even tasted that part of life that you've spent your life striving to know. As long as your life is driven by fear. As long as fear is the operating manager of your life. Conquer the fear within yourself and life reveals itself to us. This Dharma incomparably profound, minutely subtle, pervades the entire universe, revealing right here, right now. Love is everywhere. Joy is everywhere. But we cannot see it when our sight is impeded by fear. Is that the right word, impeded? Impeded, impeded by fear. So, your primary directive is to get about the business of dealing with the fear that is running your life. Now, in order to do that, you need to understand how the mind is, again, producing the fear in your life. Amazing. So, fear which for me is more than any of the other things yeah. that you talk about. It's really like the core thing that pops, yeah. whatever. So, and, and you know, you and I and everyone in this room learned that early on. Early on, we learned to substitute this basic goodness we possess of love and compassion and kindness and equanimity with fear. So where does, as this being is on the planet, wanting to survive, as, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how does that, how does that figure in that, yeah. that, that will yeah. to survive and to live, yeah. 
You have to be ready to let that go. Yeah. Right? You have to be ready to let it go for what reason? For this reason, because that is not our true reality. Okay? So when I find myself all about me surviving, okay? Yes, that's a very natural, primordial, instinctual behavior and so forth. We, be, we enter into spiritual life, being spiritual in the world, to realize the larger picture. So Zen always talks about little mind and big mind. So we operate in these bodies that are, no matter how hard we work at it, impermanent. Okay? Think about what you just asked me. We have this instinctual desire to survive, but we aren't going to survive. No matter what we do, we are not going to survive. Okay? That we all meet the same destiny and so forth. So what the Buddha realized and what all of the great teachers realized is, is, is that if that is so, is there something larger than this flesh and bone, than this body? And again, this is where spiritual practice, a lifelong commitment to living spiritually in the world, and I'm going to repeat that and probably be my last words before I die, because so many people who have come here and have heard me speak for 44 years take it for granted. It's a lifelong serious commitment to live spiritually in the world, okay, is the means by which we become aware, wake up to, you know, that word Buddha, one who woke up, wake up to our larger reality. So in, in the words I read tonight from Pema Chodron, she says, we are all part of that energy that creates things. So one might say, we, you know, uh, Einstein said, each of us are part of a whole called by us universe. Now, you might want to call it universe, as he did. You might want to call it God. You might want to call it Buddha. But the aim and objective of a lifelong commitment to spiritual, living spiritually in the world is first to realize that for yourself and then to maintain a way of life that keeps you connected with that reality. And when we're connected with that reality, you know, in those most painful, frightening hours under my blanket in my bedroom was letting go and connecting with that reality. And that was when I felt relief. That was when I would be relieved by the struggle, by the suffering, and so forth. So that's how we handle that, you know, flesh and blood instinctual survival mechanism within us, by telling ourselves the truth no matter how well we do it, we're not going to survive anyway, okay? So if our, you know, if, if my day is consumed with survival, how much of life have I missed, you see? And survival means different things to all of us. You know, uh, Maisie, you know, is talking about this, this flesh and blood, but each person in this room has a definition of survival. It could be a relationship. Mm -hmm. It could be a job. Mm -hmm. It could be your bank account. That, I want you to understand that this is what we're talking about. If I'm all consumed with trying to meet <clears throat> some unfulfilled expectation, I'm in survival mode. When I'm in survival mode, 
the brain and the mind that does not discriminate. You need to hear this. When you study the mind and you understand how it's operating from moment to moment, you need to know that it does not discriminate between real and perceived threat. So, ego is defined in this way. I have defined it in this way for the past 44 years. Ego has to do with the survival of the being. So, back in the caveman days, that meant fire, famine, uh, predators, natural disasters. But as man evolved, and we can trace this up to civilization, when man began to set up civilizations, boundaries, countries, religions, identities of this sort, that definition expanded to survival of the being, this body, and anything the being considers itself to be. And anything the being considers itself to be. This is the only way I've been able to explain after years and years of delivering seminars on relationships why two people who absolutely adore and love each other could in a moment's action on behalf of one or the other or both of them suddenly be willing to hurt their partner either verbally or physically. In that moment, ego perceives a threat whether real or not. So why do we suddenly feel insecure when someone's opinion is different than ours. And they, they, they criticize our opinion or our belief system. What is that about? Once again, the definition of ego is survival of the being and anything the being considers itself to be. So don't misunderstand. When we're talking about that primordial survival mechanism within us, that exists but what also exists with that is this notion that when you criticize, attack, or question my validity, my opinion, my belief, my idea, you're threatening me. The mind does not discriminate between that and a real physical threat to the being. Therefore, the brain automatically releases the chemicals in the body as if you are really running from a giant bear. And this is how we explain illnesses in the body so easily. We're running at an adrenaline level that is impossible to sustain. Unless we have learned to stop and do the work of calming the mind and body down, which is what meditation uh, provides us. It's not the aim of meditation. We'll talk about that in a moment. But, but certainly it has been well proven in medical science that if you practice meditation regularly and mindfulness, you can lower your stress levels. But that's not the aim of meditation. The aim of meditation and mindfulness living, the aim of living spiritually, is to awaken to and to maintain and manage a life of being connected to that larger reality, that larger reality. This is what all of the great teachers set out to discover. Whether we're talking about Buddha or Christ or the prophets, to know that larger reality and to then learn how to live on the planet connected to that reality, connected to that reality. 
Now here's, here's the bad news, okay? You're still gonna die. Hi. Hi, um, so one of the things that I hear you saying is when any of us are operating from an ego standpoint, even if what we fear has reality to it, there's, so, there's no purpose in maintaining that position because we feel alone Mm -hmm. Whereas if we could transcend or be in a bigger mind, we would feel connected. Yes. On an experiential and you got it. level. You got it. So what matters? So you, so you become poor, you, you're going to die, so what? Because when, it's not the I saying, I've got to live over everything. Right, right. Yeah, you got it. Whenever we feel separated, lonely, uh, unloved, and all of that, the fear that is the operating manager of our lives until we awaken to it, okay, ha is restricting us, limiting us. Look, it not only determines what we are experiencing in the moment, but it also determines what we're permitted to experience. So, when I think of like Bourdain and uh, Robin committing suicide, I can't imagine the amount of pain at that moment, but you reference something where the Buddha said, I'm either going to awake or I'm going to die, right? right? That so was his maybe, commitment. Yes, yeah, so it was when, like uh, west of Bre yeah, So, it? you know, so yeah. here's the thing maybe they didn't want to die, they wanted to die to the pain, but they couldn't have a transcendent experience. Right. Something, something their fear was so great that yeah. it restricted them. Remember what I said, it not only determines what you are experiencing in the moment, but what you are permitted to experience. So are you aware of all, when they used LSD at John mm -hmm. Hopkins and all that, Walter Pop yeah. and that, when, when cancer couldn't be treated in terms of pain, and they would have an LSD trip, and because they were no longer overly identified with their body and pain is some of the perception, mm -hmm. it diminished their pain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was in the company of someone two weeks ago who went through that. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, Sandstoff Groff refers to like these spiritual emergencies. So sometimes when I hear of people like Bourdain and that, yeah, he had a, a psychiatric history, but did he also have enmeshed in that a spiritual existential experience that he couldn't resolve? I, I couldn't answer that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 But what is always determining our experience in the moment, yes. as well as what we are permitted to experience, is the level of fear that is managing our life. So, again, Pema Children says to us in the reading tonight, uh, these, this discomfort is a red flag, saying you're stuck in your fear somewhere. Figure that out. Don't try to color it over with a narrative. No need to run from it because you can't run away from it. That's another thing. You can't run away from it. You've got to resolve this. You're here to resolve this. And you either resolve it from, the, from again, certain Buddhist teachings. You either resolve it in this life or you come back again to do it all over again. Until you do resolve it. You see? Until you resolve it. So 
you know, like the great Korean Zen master uh, who goes around when, when, when his monks are all meditating in deep meditation, he jumps in front of them and squats and puts his nose up to their face and says, if not now, when? You know, if not now, when? You're saying? So the first step to any real and substantial spiritual life is the resolve now, is the resolution now. Stop putting off what you can't put off. You are here to resolve the fear that has limited your experience of the wonder of life, of the wonder of life and death, life and death. I need to say that. You have to stop being afraid of death because it's part of life. Hi, Cassie. It's always a wonderful feeling to be in company of your words, worship, and for the words of others that I've listened to. Fear. For myself, I use the acronym forgetting everything about reality. <laughs> it's like an imagination uh, cinema going on in the mm. brain, uh, concocting all of these scenarios and stories that they have nothing to do with reality. Mm. But that fear can just uh, stop you and uh, it can make you just uh, uh, paralyzed mm -hmm. yeah. because you're locked up in that yeah. and you have to escape. And for me, um, I have been trying very hard to practice that the meditation uh, that um, has been taught by a dear friend who teaches meditation. And I say the words. I have to stop. I have to pause. I have to breathe. I have to be. And I have to say it over and over. So the fear, the non-reality, is going to leave within me because it so paralyzes me to uh, not want to really um, go forward. Um, yeah. I like what uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says, each breath a new life. I practice it that. So for me, it's a lot about breathing, breathing exercises that help with those fears. I would say it's not a lot about it's all about it it's all about it and we're, we're gonna we'll do some meditation before we leave tonight but it's all about that it's all about detaching from the narrative and returning to that precious breath that in your background you understand was once referred to as spiritus the same word referencing the holy spirit the, the life force of god the, of the trinity and so forth so it's all about coming back to that breath and using that breath. It was my salvation battling with cancer. It was my refuge battling with cancer. It was the only thing that uh, got me through the, the long dark nights and what have you. Yeah. 
So what I truly try to seek in that breath is not an escape, but a serenity. And that place of serenity is unexplainable other than a total freedom. A freedom from death, a freedom from want, from any manufactured scenarios of fear, all of that. And uh, there are moments in life when I do experience that true serenity. And it's, uh, it just brings me a deep joy to my heart yeah. and a smile. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Hi. Hi. Um, I think I've been coming here for a while now, on and off. But I remember I came here a long time ago, like 10 years ago or so, in high school. And uh, it really helped coming to the meetings, like to center me, to feel these things. I've been trying to carry on with these teachings throughout my life thus far. But you always said, uh, I think, you can't just come to the meetings, you have to meditate, you know. You can come to the meetings and do that. It, it did, I think, work for a while. But it's, I, I found myself getting so caught up in the story of life and engaging with it and becoming more irritable and more uh, uh, resentful as the years went on because I wasn't practicing, because I, I didn't come back here as much and also because I was too caught up in, in the, like, the, the slog of daily activity that blinds you to the, that, that truth. I guess. Yeah, yeah. This is where the teachings of taking refuge come in. Okay? So, you know, I often talk about uh, many years ago, I was out in Las Vegas and I was driving down the main uh, street and past Caesar Palace. And they had this fluorescent sign flashing outside. And it said over and over again, you got to come in the wind. You got to come in the wind. Okay? And so forth. So, in Buddhism, we take refuge in the Sangha. We take refuge in exposing ourselves regularly to a community of fellow practitioners. And the Buddha, in his wisdom, Christ, in his wisdom, all of the great teachers emphasize the need of being part of a community of people and exposing ourselves to that energy and to that presence. So, yes, uh, it's not enough to just come and hear me talk. You can go on the internet and do that, okay? It's about, you know, again, uh, taking refuge in the energy that comes with regular training and practice. It's a lifetime commitment, a lifetime commitment. And anyone who tells you differently is lying to you. And you can tell them I called them a liar. <laughs> Thank you, good to see you again. Thank you. 10 years later. <laughs> Anyone else? Hi. Hi, I'm Valerie. I Hi, just Valerie. want to say how wonderful it is to see you again and that you're doing your healthy and you're sharing your experience. And, Thank um, you. I, I'm just in awe that you're here with us. And um, about a year ago, I do practice the meditation and, and so forth. But a year ago, I went out on this blind faith of the situation I was in and just trusting God and trusting my higher power and staying focused and healthy, but meditating that it will all be well. It will all be well. Because it will as long as I am, and I stay focused, and I stay healthy, and surround myself, and do my practices. And um, I could be at my lowest point, and that's when 
my God seems to bring me back up from my knees. Mm-hmm. And um, I say just doing the next right thing and talking to other priests, talking to other um, people that are into Buddha and um, yoga and everything. And it's amazing what has been happening. But it's also put me in a place of just being, just be at be, just be, just be. Mm-hmm. Not all excited, not just be. And um, I helped a dear friend pass to the other side, and it was the most beautiful thing I could have done. You know, this last breath. And I look at it as a celebration. Life is a celebration to pass. And um, I love when you talk about that because I get excited. So I just want to say thank you, and I brought my friend to, thank you. to see. Thank you. I thank you for you coming see. back and bringing your friend. Yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Welcome. Thank you. Anyone else? I do have a question. Sure. Just in general, uh, can someone who's in like severe chronic pain, ongoing, to change that story? I mean, is that You need to know that I have all my stories from childhood on. Okay? I have all of them. Okay? And it's not, it's not about losing the story. It's about holding the story in, in its proper position. It's about, again, as I said earlier, not holding it as something solid or fact-based. It is as fluid as everything else in existence. So it's about my attachment to the story. So an ex- a very simple exercise, for example, is that if the story isn't helping you, drop it. Okay? If you want to try it from that direction. Okay? So uh, I know people have been living with the same story all their life and are as miserable as can be. You're saying? And uh, so if the story isn't working, drop it. It's all about my attachment to the story. So if we can kind of like try to visualize this, you know, again, the way the Buddha talked about it is that most of us are operating from one of two extremes, you know, this, this edge or this edge. The uh, Buddhism is referred to as the middle way, where we shift from these edges, from these extremes, and walk to the middle and live in the middle. And the middle is, uh, the story is true except sometimes, okay, like that. So it's just like I talk about, you know, living my vows. I've been a monk, I'll be 45 years next year as a monk. I've, I've lived by these vows, except sometimes. And when the except sometimes has happened, you just clean up the mess, okay? So it all, co- it all begins, and I see this, I, I see this you know, a- again, clear as I get older. It really all begins and ends with radical honesty with yourself, telling the truth. If it doesn't work, drop it, okay? So in fact, when the Buddha was confronted by a philosopher on the road one day who had heard about him teaching and and still didn't understand what he was saying, he he confronted the Buddha and he said, you know, look, I've I've read what people have written about you. I've been to some of your talks but I still ain't clear what you're trying to say. Can you clarify it for me? 
And he said, I will, but you won't get it anyway, but I will. And what he said was this, when you find what works, do it. When you find what doesn't work, don't do it. That's the bottom line. That's the radical honesty we need to uh, have in our life. We need to get radical about being true to ourselves. We need to tell the truth. Um, chronic illness is tough. You know, I'm in remission, but still deal with the side effects and, and all of that, and dealing with PTSD going on now and all of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's tough. It's, it's a tough road to hoe, but it is nonetheless a road to hoe. Okay? Mm -hmm. So we need to have radical honesty and we need to have radical courage. And the courage, you know, again, for me, falls back to that principle of identity. When people ask me, why do you live this way? My simple answer is, it's because I said so. Because I said I would. And you need to live your life that way. You need to, as Valerie, uh, listening to Valerie, you, you need to take care of your life. You need to take care of your life. And um, because only you can do that. Only you can do that. Okay. Thank you. And you need to do it for you and you need to do it for me. Okay. I'm expecting it, all right. And I don't like unfulfilled expectations. <laughs> Anyone else? I tend Hi. to be intellectual, and I'm thinking of Cooper Ross and the uh, stages of death mm -hmm. and having a good death. I work with palliative care patients and hospice patients, and other traditions, it looks like it's not there uh, compared to what I'm hearing tonight. Mm -hmm. well, do you, can you clarify that a little more, what you mean by it's not there? I mean, uh, well, what I've experienced is that people in palliative care, they're still getting medications and all when they go into hospice, they are so drugged up and they can't relate or can't talk or they're, they're just in a coma almost. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how what could be done or uh, what other traditions, I know Christians, uh, priests and monks in there, uh, common ministers and Jewish people, the religion. So it, it's been disappointing at times. I've seen beautiful deaths, but most of the time there are people who are uh, so drugged up. Yeah. Yeah. You want to address that, Jamal? Yes, I, I work full-time as a hospice chaplain. Um, and, and that's not, at least in my hospice, that's not um, my experience. The, um, the object is to give the, the best quality of life toward the end of life. So we, you know, the only time we would um, affect somebody's consciousness in that way is if, if we had to, to relieve uh, pain. And we often usually don't have to do that. There's all kinds of things that won't, uh, you said something about drugging them out or getting them out of their head to do that. And in fact, it's an issue. I gave a talk recently on Buddhist practice for healthcare uh, workers. And um, you know, one of our, our precepts is, is that we don't take anything that will cloud the mind. So that becomes an issue towards the end of life in terms of that. But um, my experience is that we have all kinds of stuff we can use these days yeah, to bring people towards the end of life 
that's, that's not going to really clog their mind, at least not much, not much, uh, and allow them to have a, have a good death. The people are not s physically suffering. It allows us to be able to address emotional and spiritual suffering. If we address the spiritual and emotional suffering uh, in a positive way, in a successful way, people people die in a pleasant way. People people go to death. But Roshi's what Roshi's been talking about all night has been my experience in this realm. The people that hang on to their expectations, stories, possessions, um, life. In in essence, there's people that will not let go. Will not, will not not yield, those are the worst deaths. Those are the most painful deaths. And people that, it, it always touches my heart when I talk to somebody and say, how are you doing? Is it, how are you approaching the end of your life? And they shrug and they say, I'm ready. I'm good. I'm good. I'm ready, ready to go. You know, that's, that's just so heartwarming to be able to hear that. So um, my, my experience is that, that Pali took care and, and hospice, if done correctly, uh, it's really, really a positive thing. It, it's better than putting somebody in the hospital and start sticking tubes and mm -hmm. tests and everything in them when they're going to die anyway. Thank you for your question. Is that helpful? Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I will tell you that uh, I had palliative care because uh, part of uh, what they did was major surgery on my plumbing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... Um, uh, the palliative doctor that visited me and prescribed medicine uh, was very uh, respectful. He, he had said to me, you know, we're going to talk about the options because I want to respect the fact that you're a Buddhist monk and what have you. So could be just, uh, you know, what you've seen so far. That was at Cooper Hospital, okay? And uh, there was a real, genuine, uh, and this doctor really impressed me. He was a young guy and sincere that he did not want to do anything or prescribe anything that would in any way uh, impede or violate that. Thank you. Anyone else? So why don't we put our feet on the floor so that we can feel the earth solid beneath us and close our eyes and get comfortable in our seats. <clears throat> and what you want to avoid doing is sitting in a way that you find yourself fall asleep, possibly. Mm -hmm. So you want to sit upright, feel square, feel supported by the chair, feel supported by the earth beneath you. And just close your eyes and for a moment just get in touch with the experience of just sitting there, again, feeling supported, grounded. And just take a few moments to bring your awareness to your body, as if you're just observing a cloud passing in front of you in the sky no story about it, no conversation about it. You're just noticing how you feel at the moment. And just continue to draw your awareness to the sensation of body, your body, 
and notice any bodily sensations. How you feel at this very moment. Nothing to do, as if you're just too relaxed to do anything whatsoever, but just sit and observe. Without any kind of manipulation or manufacturing or fabrication, just bring your awareness now to your breathing. Don't do anything with your breath, just notice your breathing. Consciously aware when you inhale, consciously aware when you exhale. We call this sometimes following our breath. So all you want to do is just notice each inhalation as you breathe in, just notice I am breathing in. And as you exhale, just notice I am exhaling, I am breathing out. Just continue to keep your awareness on your breathing. If at any time you notice any mental formations, you start to wander off thinking about something without judgment or criticism, just notice you're doing that and come back to your breath. Return to the next inhalation, return to the next exhalation. Just follow your breath, stay with your breath. Now take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Just breathe normally and continue to keep your awareness on your breath. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. And continue to follow your breath.
Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Stay with your breath. Once again, if you find yourself wandering off and thinking about anything, just notice that and come back and take that breath and start again. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Stay with your breath. So that is a very simplistic exercise that you, if you've not meditated before, you can begin with. We focus our awareness on the body first, so as if we are anchoring ourselves. So the first step of meditation is to stop, to stop all motion, physical and mental. So we want to sit either in a chair or on a cushion in a way that we feel supported, that we feel grounded in the earth, that we feel present to the moment. And continue to, buy, to simply bring more and more awareness into or toward the sensation of that posture and the sensation of feeling supported. And eventually you make your way to your breathing. Once again, the term, the ancient term spiritus, pointed to the breath as life, and most certainly it is. We can deny you food, and you may last a week. We can deny you drink, maybe a little shorter than that. But if we cut off your breathing, you're gone in a matter of moments. Breath is life. It is the life force. And that's why in meditation, our focus is on that force as it enters the body and as it exits the body. 
you want to because and the reason for this is because most of the time we aren't breathing skillfully for the body's own health and well-being we tend to breathe into the chest so when you breathe you want to breathe actually into that area of your abdomen around the navel so that you're filling up that space now when I ask you to breathe in and hold your breath you can do these momentary holding of breath in this way take a deep breath and as you're holding it if you're able to count to seven at seven you release the breath and go back to normal breathing but again with an awareness of each inhalation and exhalation and then a few moments later take another deep breath and you'll find that what we're doing is expanding the capacity to hold the breath which is what you want to do you want to work on expanding your capacity to hold your breath so that eventually your breathing becomes smooth and uninterrupted the smoother and the less interrupted breath tends to relax the body at a much quicker and longer uh, position so we are training the body in order for us to learn to be present focusing on the breath again we are training the mind not to wander off so what is often coined as mindfulness living is really just an ancient Zen technique of awareness so mindfulness practice is where you take what you've learned by training yourself on the cushion or in a chair meditating every day to living uh, throughout the day so for example let's say for whatever reason something stimulates stress in your body and you are aware of that you notice that you're feeling stress you bring the meditation technique to that moment by stopping bringing your awareness to that area of your body where you are experiencing the stress and then by inhaling breathing into that area as if you are gently massaging the stress in that part of your body learn to hold your breath more often at longer intervals and you will find that in the release of the breath the stress will drop away as well but again that comes after you know periods a lengthy time of training both mind and body to stay with the breath we come from out here in the world running all over the place to right here we breathe in and we want to breathe deeply into the abdomen area hold it for seven seconds and release it and when you release it release it to relax even more then continue to breathe normally then again take another deep breath and hold it again if you can expand the amount of time that you can hold your breath uh, you will find that the ability to get more relaxed quicker will also develop for you but it's all about managing that breath the ancient Zen masters said manage the breath manage the mind if you can if you can master following your breath following it in the, as you inhale following it as you exhale expanding the length of time that you can hold it the mind starts to naturally naturally settle down even more 
So I often talk about it this way. Forty some years ago, stress would run over me, back over me, run over me again, back over me again before I could do anything about it. Now I can spot it coming 10 miles away and then prepared for it. That's the results of a regular and consistent daily practice of seated meditation. But you don't get there without that. You don't get there without that. Fear is the managing operator of our daily living. And when we are ready to tell the truth about that, to ourselves, whether anyone else knows it or not, because part of the f fearful life is we've got these great acts we put on that we're not afraid, you're saying. So being honest with ourselves that fear is the managing operator of our daily living, we, w we then commit ourselves to turning that around, to flipping that around. There will always be fearful moments. There will always be moments of discomfort. But they don't have to manage you. You can manage it. And again, it comes from this regular and committed uh, practice of meditation as well as the way in which you live your life. The way in which you live your life determines not only what you will experience from moment to moment, but what you are permitted to experience. If there is, if there is you know, any experience such as joy or love or happiness that you feel you know, as if you don't have enough of, you need to take a look at where the fear in your life is impeding that from happening for you. Fear not only determines what we are experiencing from moment to moment, but also what we're permitted to experience. And by that I also mean what we're permitted to see. The world we view is a reflection of that internal state of the being. So if the being is fearful, the world looks like a very scary, off place. Once the being achieves its own peace of mind, its own happiness and its own joy, the world changes. I often compare it to, and everybody in this room hopefully has this memory, of the first time you ever fell in love. The first time I fell in love, the whole world changed. The whole world changed. Suddenly this terrible, rotten place became this wonderful place to be part of, and I did not want to leave. The internal state of the being determines not only what the being is experiencing in the moment, but also what the being is permitted to experience. Any questions? You saw that stress coming, you caught it, and and you got awake at that moment. What do you what do you do with it? You, you do you, you do you do nothing with it. Okay, you stay with your breath. Uh, when the Tibetans talk about uh, the Buddha's enlightenment, they create this very dramatic story, and so in the books, that, the colorful books that depict his enlightenment, uh, they show this seven-day period of med deep meditation. And while he was sitting under the Bodhi tree, armies came at him, uh, all kinds of temptations came at him, and he just remained grounded and sturdy. And he talked about, you know, you should sit like the great oak tree whose roots go deep into the ground and spread wide. So no matter what storm, no matter what stress comes, it's not moved. And again, training yourself 
to maintain an awareness of the breath is where those roots take place, where those roots go deep and spread out. So it, the Japanese term for it is shikantaza, just sit. Just sit, just follow your breath. That's all you do. Just sit, just follow your breath. And allow the experience, whatever the stressful experience may be at the moment, to just be present. And you stay with your breath and again, the, when you are willing to fully experience something, to allow it to be fully present to you, and you to it, it disappears. Okay? Thank you. Anyone else? Ma'am. Yeah, the action that you spoke of, that Buddha spoke about, the action that comes from within, does that get easier and easier with more meditation? It not only, it, it get something more better than easier and easier uh, you and it are no longer separate so your actions and you are one and that feels like easy okay but there's something deeper and more profound going on in that moment and I, I've not been able to find a word for it <laughs> to thine own self be true is the beginning of any real spiritual path then a unprecedented radical commitment to taking care of your life through the various spiritual practices loving kindness the uh, the four limitless uh, potentials loving kindness being loving and kind to yourself and being loving and kind to others compassionate to yourself and others compassion begins when you are willing to drop all narratives that are critical and judgmental about yourself and others. You can't just do one side. It's got to be about yourself and others. Joy. Joy is a, a point of view. It's not happiness. It's a point of view. It's more like an appreciative, a gratitude for life. And then uh, equanimity. Equanimity is what we've talked about most of this evening learning to hold all experiences equally without attaching a narrative or a story to it. Each of those four limitless potentials uh, resolve themselves in the life of the Bodhisattva. The life of the Bodhisattva is benevolence, benevolent service for all sentient beings. When the monks and I perform the ritual that you witness each time that we place our rock sutras on our shoulders, we bring the bag that holds the rock sutra to our forehead. There is a private intention, a silent intention that we make. And that intention has to do with our vow that we do not train and practice for our own liberation, but for the liberation of all sentient beings. We live for the benefit of all sentient beings. And that's not intended to be heard as something holy or something, you know, wondrous or what have you. It it's, has to do with the fact that I said earlier, that is the true joy in life. To know yourself as a benefit for others. You know it and I know it. In those times that you have loved someone, a friend, a stranger, a spouse, a sibling, you know, when you have loved yourself, this loving kindness begins with you and goes outward because you cannot give what you do not have. Okay? So it begins with practicing loving kindness towards yourself. 
How do I love myself? How do I be kind? I forgive every time. You know, I often say to my Christian friends, you know, uh, and my Jewish friends that if you take a look at this uh, creation stories in Genesis, it talks about how uh, after God created everything, God looks back and says, it is good. And you've been trying to correct his mistakes ever since. <laughs> I'm saying? I'm saying? So you either get it that you're forgiven or you're not. You can't have it both ways, you see. So we practice that by, again, uh, dropping the storyline that is critical and judgmental, either of yourself or, or as others. And the practice I've often give, given young students, beginners over the years, is that every single time the narrative that is self-critical or self-judgmental shows up, you stop, you take a deep breath, and as you exhale, you say to yourself, there's another lie. There's another lie. And you stop lying. You stop lying. Compassion must begin for yourself. You must feel compassion towards yourself and practice compassion towards yourself so that you can know it intimately and personally and share it with others. Joy is a sense of gratitude. You need to know, and this is the God's honest truth, I wouldn't lie to you. You need to know that that entire year, in pain, suffering, my last words every night, and my first words every morning when I woke up and realized I was still here was thank you. Was thank you. As terrible as it was, it was better than the option. You know, and so forth. So joy is this kind of gratitude. Just to be alive. Just, just to be, and if you're healthy, to be healthy. Whatever, find whatever you can be grateful for and get down to the business of being grateful. Equanimity, again is learning to stop discriminating between good and bad. When bad things show up, you can handle it. And handle it with dignity, and handle it with integrity, and handle it with honesty. When good things show up, don't make a big deal of it. Because guess what? It'll pass. It'll pass. What always follows good is bad, and what always follows bad is good. Everything is of the nature of impermanence. I often enjoy telling the story of the late Suzuki Roshi, probably the greatest Japanese Zen master to ever come to this country. And there's a story about in Sashin, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, which is an extended period of meditation. And this was a Ohatsu Sashin, and during Ohatsu and other Sashins, the monks and students come in and meet with their teacher privately in a separate room from the uh, meditation hall. And so this one young lady came in, and she's sitting before Suzuki Roshi, and she says, oh, Roshi, I have heard the voice of God. I, I hear angels. I have seen great lights. And she's going on and on and on about the bliss that she's experienced. And Roshi simply says, don't worry, that'll pass. <laughs> don't worry, that'll pass. To hold everything in equanimity is to tell the truth about everything. Everything is of the nature of impermanence. Except one thing. Your basic goodness, your Buddha nature, and your ability to love, to be kind, to be compassionate, and to be of benefit to others. Cultivate and nurture that within yourself. Focus on that part of your life, and everything else will naturally be taken care of. Everything else will naturally be taken care of. Any last questions?
So next month, on the second Saturday of the month, the monks and I, between the hour of 9 o'clock and 5 p.m., eight hours, you do it every day, okay, we will be gathering for a one-day sashin. It is a day dedicated to strict silence in the meditation hall and when we take our meals throughout the day. I'd like to see everybody register for that and join us. So that's the second Saturday of the month. It'll be on the website soon, uh, again from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, I'm not sure what that date is, but you can figure it out. And like I said, in, in another week or so, you'll, you'll see the registration <coughs> on our website at pinewind.org. Come and join the experience of being in the company of like-minded people and experience that energy, that healing energy, and so forth. Uh, and also, again, you're familiar with the other programs that are here. Many of you come to the Wednesday night. They're great classes. You get to hear other teachers beside me talk. And uh, so don't forget them next week. Uh, Emyo will be doing this coming Wednesday a review of what we call our training period, the Ango training period. Uh, right? Faith and mind poem this time. Faith of, oh, faith and mind poem this time. Okay. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> next month is a summary. Next month. Okay. Chimon teaches on the first uh, Wednesday of the month, and Genjo, who's not with us tonight, uh, teaches on the second Wednesday of the month. Very few places, definitely in this area, where you get the opportunity to hear four different teachers and so forth. Any other announcements? Also, on Thursday, this coming Thursday morning, Genjo leads the meditation. A meditation at 5.30 and 9.30 in the morning. Next Thursday. Next Thursday, yes. Yeah. Last but not least, become a member. We'd love to have you as a member. We need your support. We are a 501c3 organization. We rely on the donations of everyone none of the and the donations of the monks. Uh, most people don't know this, but uh, we take no salary, no stipend for the work that we do here. And whatever donations come in, they go out to pay the mortgage and the taxes and the other expenses of having this building and this property. So membership matters. And it deeply connects you to the energy and the work here, and at the same time helps to keep it going for others uh, who keep coming after 44 years and still coming, thank God. Mm -hmm. so. Okay? Question, may I add something? Mm -hmm. And in addition to the programs that we run here, we also do programs off campus at colleges and other places. So um, we're out there in various ways. We're everywhere. <laughs> From the bottom of my heart, it was a privilege to be with you tonight. Thank you. Permit me to respectfully remind you, birth and death is the supreme matter. Everything is of the nature of impermanence. Gone, gone, forever gone. Opportunity is too often lost. Do not squander your life. I see a safe journey. I see a safe return. Good night. Thank you. Good night.